Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and joining me today, as he has done for nearly every one of the last 110 weeks, is Simon Elliott, Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. Well, Simon, this has been a very interesting week in the markets and not least in uh, British politics, when we've seen the resignation as Conservative Party leader, at least, of uh, Boris Johnson as our Prime Minister in the UK. But there's been another significant departure this week, which is the fact that you, Simon Elliott, are, after 20 years, are leaving Winterflood Securities to take up another job at uh, JP Morgan, Managing Director in their Investment Trust Division. And as a result of which, very sadly, you will no longer be able to, or at least we feel you will no longer be able to continue with this uh, podcast every week because of potential conflicts of interest and so on. So that's very disappointing for many people. But I have to say the podcast is going to continue. It's going to be a slightly different format from now on, which I think is uh, maybe a good thing or may not. Uh, I already signed up a couple of very heavyweight uh, investors to uh, follow Simon in the next couple of weeks uh, in the form of uh, I'm going to be talking to Peter Spiller next week, the manager of Capital Gearing Trust, who's been in the market now for over 40 years, even longer than uh, even longer than me, I think, actually, and uh, certainly longer than you, Simon. And then the following week, I think we're going to have a session with Nick Greenwood of Mighton Opportunities Trust, another fund of investment trusts. But I have to ask you this question before you tell us a little bit about this job you're moving to. What actually... I'm echoing Mrs. Merton here. What actually is it about <laughs> the world's largest and most influential bank with uh, 3.7 trillion of assets, 121 billion of revenues and 270,000 employees? What is it about that firm that has persuaded you to give up doing an unpaid weekly hour-long <laughs> conversation about investment trusts <laughs> on the Moneymakers podcast? <laughs> I've been, I've been trying to work it out all week, and frankly, I I've just I haven't been able to work it out. So you're stumped. I'm stumped, yeah. Yeah. So pre- absolutely stumped. Well, <laughs> so tell us what you're doing and uh, and why, I guess I have to ask you why. Yeah, no, sure. Well, look, first things first. I think when you contacted me initially, and I've known you for probably the best part of 20 years, certainly many, many years, but when you contacted me back in March 2020, when the world was ending, and we we're all staring into the abyss at that stage. Markets were obviously in turmoil, in freefall, basically. And you said, would I be prepared to be interviewed for a podcast for moneymakers to talk about investment trust and all the rest? And I said, yes, of course, Jonathan, that would be a pleasure. And I think we talked for about 10 or 15 minutes on that particular occasion. And uh, you signed off by saying that's all we've got time for. But please feel free to join us again next week to hear what Simon has to say about the investment trust market, I don't think I realised at that stage that 110 <laughs> weeks later, possibly even a few more, we'd still be running through what's happening in the investment trust. But look, it has been absolutely brilliant. It's been a, a, a pleasure and a privilege to do this with you. I mean, in terms of my own move, well, I've been at Winterflood Securities for, for 20 years covering the investment trust sector. I've headed up the research team there, I think, for about 15 of those 20 years so it's just been a great job, a great role, a fantastic team, a very strong team covering the trust sector. But I think there comes a stage where a new challenge is, is a great thing. And you know, to your point, JP Morgan Asset Management has got a tremendous footprint, not just in, in terms of investment management, but in investment trusts. Uh, so it's responsible for 22 investment trust companies. There's, a, there's also a US-based one as well. But I think the aggregate assets across that stable are about 12.5 billion or so at the end of June. 
And in my opinion, I think it's a, it's a tremendous stable. I mean, they've got some names in there that date back, and I'm sure you have all the dates to your fingertips, Jonathan, but date back I was coming to, that, uh, to the 19th <laughs> century, names such as uh, Mercantile and JP Morgan and American, and yet they've launched new funds as well. In fact, I think one that we're going to talk about later in this podcast, the Global uh, Core Real Estate Fund, and they've launched new funds uh, more than that in the last 10, 15 years. So it's a dynamic business, and the opportunity to join that team and grow that investment trust business, I think, is a, is a hugely, hugely exciting one. So I will miss our weekly conversations greatly. And you can imagine when I came to kind of weigh up the decision, should I stay or should I go? This was one of the, <laughs> the factors I had to consider very carefully. But all things must end. Uh, and so here we are. Well, it's very kind of you to say what you've said. And, uh, you know, JP Morgan's gain is our loss. Obviously, the listeners will be disappointed. They think it'd be very difficult to find someone who can uh, comment across the whole range of the investment trust sector with as much authority and knowledge as you have been doing for the last uh, couple of years and a bit. And uh, apart from your taste in music, which, uh, you know, we've never quite agreed on, it will be <laughs> it'll be a shame not to have you on the podcast from now on. But uh, we'll be following what you do at JP Morgan with great interest. And uh, I dare say you and I are going to stay in touch. And uh, hopefully I'll be able to reflect some of your knowledge and wisdom in what I have to say in future. So as it is, we have to press on. Uh, that is the game. I should also make the point, though, uh, when we come back, what's going to happen with the podcast is that we've got the next two weeks for sure have been lined up with the very uh, authoritative people on the other side of the microphone. But after that, I think we might take a short break because, uh, as you've pointed out, we haven't had a break since uh, since we started this. And uh, I'm thinking of actually going on holiday for a period. So you might actually suspend the podcast for a couple of weeks or so. And uh, in the meantime, uh, we are lining up all sorts of uh, other speakers to take part in the podcast. It won't be quite the same format, I think. But I just wanted to emphasize that for people who subscribe to the Moneymakers Circle, which I know a number of you do, we do have every week a comprehensive list of all the announcements have been made by Investment Trust during the course of the week. And we have some commentary around that. We don't have the exhaustive analysis that uh, you, Simon, have been able to come up with. And we also have you know, the week's movements in the Investment Trust prices and NAVs and discounts. Uh, so there's a wealth of information there along with fund profiles and uh, my own commentary from time to time. So I hope that you will consider that. And uh, we will be back definitely. So please don't... Uh, sign off or cancel your subscription just yet we will be back doing the best we can to replace simon over the next uh, few weeks and months so let's get down to it now then this week we've had the resignation of a prime minister <laughs> i mean not insignificant but the markets have stabilized a little bit i think well, well tell us what's been happening this week uh, overall yeah well look it's been a better week for the markets in general and as always we record this around friday lunchtime so this is data for the first four days of the week and in that time, we saw the investment company sector up 1.9%. So a positive return so far. And actually, that represented an outperformance of the wider UK market. That was up about 0.5% over those first four days. But before we get too excited, it's worth noting that the investment company sector so far year to date is down 17.2%. That compares with a decline of 4.1% for the UK market. In terms of the sector average discount, well, that narrowed in uh, a little bit this week. So it probably started the week about 9.8%. And at the close of Thursday, at least, it was about 8.9%. But the average so far this year has been 6%. That's significantly wider than we've seen it in recent years. And in fact, I think it bounced off about 10 or 11% at one stage during this week. So overall, discounts remain wide. 
But in terms of the marketplace, well, you know, there's always a lot to talk about. I mean, energy prices have been volatile. We've seen warnings of the potential impact of Russia cutting off gas supplies to Europe this week. Certainly energy costs have been on a real roller coaster. The Bank of England has warned that uh, the UK economic outlook has deteriorated materially due to inflation pressures. And, and as you've mentioned a couple of times, it has been a week of resignations. Boris Johnson's decision to resign as the chairman of the Conservative Party uh, after a virtual siege of number 10. Uh, and we've seen Sterling apparently appear to strengthen as a result of that. But I think actually the market's attention, and perhaps one of the reasons why we have gone a little bit better this week, is news of a stimulus package in China. Um, some quite big numbers being bandied around. I've seen $220 billion. But certainly this idea that China as an economy are going to take whatever means is necessary to get moving again, to get back on a growth tack. Indeed. And also, I mean, that's an interesting development because there's been this uh, swirling wave of opinion, if you like, that's been concerned about inflation, then to switching to concern about recession and slowing economic growth. And we saw that last week. We talked about that reflected in uh, lower mining and metal prices, for example, and bond yields coming off a bit. But this week, they've uh, stabilised a little bit. Uh, the 10-year in the States, Treasury uh, is back up near to 3% again. So, uh, yeah, it's still all to play for. We've got a lot of volatility around and uh, politics, of course, coming into the fray as well. Before we come back to that, I think let's just quickly race through some corporate activity this week in the investment trust sector. We have got a few housekeeping announcements, if you like, this week, which uh, bring us up to speed on one or two developments. Uh, so let's quickly run through those. And we're going to start off with our normal a uh, reminder that uh, the great thing about investment trusts is there is a sort of Darwinian process at work when uh, failing investment trusts do tend to disappear, which is on balance a good thing. And uh, unlike many open-ended funds, which sort of drift on until they uh, uh, until they just disappear from view, but uh, never quite so quickly. So on that context, let's kick off with Cambium Global Timberland, ticker TREE, that is T-R-E-E, not surprisingly. Tell us what the news is on this uh, on this trust. Yeah, basically, they announced that they are now finally got to the point where they're going to wind up. They need shareholder approval and they'll seek that at a general meeting on the 3rd of August. Their shares will cease trading on the 4th of August if that's successful. And the company, the investment company itself, will be dissolved around May 2023. Now, despite its rather good ticker, this has not been a massive success. This fund was launched back in March 2007. It raised about £104 million at IPO. It didn't work. It was hit by a number of particular instances. And actually, the board decided to go into an orderly managed wind down uh, that was approved back in February 2013. So it's about a 10 year process, which perhaps illustrates that where you do deal with very illiquid underlying assets, it can take some time. But we're finally there on this one. It's a very small investment company now. It's only got a market cap of about £5 million or so. Uh, and most of its assets are sitting in cash, but it's finally coming to the end of its life. Indeed. I think, as we noted the other week, uh, we've seen this recent launch of uh, Foresight Forestry, sustainable forestry fund. So the kind of, if you like, this kind of business has come around again, but uh, too late for this one, which, uh, as you say, has taken an awful long time to be to be wound up, but has already become very small. So it's not really of massive significance uh, in terms of overall losses. Let's move on and talk about LXI REIT, a more positive story. Ticker LXI, which is proceeding with a merger with a Secure Income REIT, ticker SIR. Uh, where are we on this one? 
it's done. It's done and dusted. So we finally got the various bits of approval that we needed this week. And so the merger became effective on Thursday. So as a result, LXI REIT now stands with a market cap. I've got it on my screen about £2.5 billion. Pounds, so quite a substantial increase in size. There was a bit of cash returned to secure income REIT shareholders, about £160 billion pounds or so. It was a kind of cash option. But even so, we've seen LXI REIT uh, really grow significantly as a result of that. And how are the shares trading since uh, Thursday? Well, since yesterday, I should say. Yeah, I've got them on my screen about 145 spot 4p, so up ever so slightly. But it's on a, it's on a premium. I've got it on about a 3% premium or so to NAV. Okay, so that's gone through and that's been a good result, I think, for both parties there. Nice to see a merger that actually is uh, can be classified in that way, at least so far. So good, anyway. Uh, next up is a Scott Gems, ticker SGEM. And this is another one, unfortunately, which we're not going to be seeing for much longer. Tell us what's going on here. Yeah, that's right. So the board have come out this week and they've put forward proposals for a voluntary liquidation that would see shareholders receive a full cash exit less costs. And uh, I mean, we talked about this, I think, a few months ago. Basically, the investment manager, Sassentia Investors, served notice on the board, uh, and the board were left to consider the size of the investment company, which is not particularly large. I've got it on a, about a, a total assets of about 45 million or so at the moment. It's discount to NAV and the liquidity of its shares. And then probably on all measures, it's a little subpar, to be honest. So the manager has now been instructed to realise the portfolio in an orderly manner, they want to avoid any kind of fire sale process and the exact timing of the liquidation will dependent on market conditions. So they're not in a great hurry to do this. Now, subject to the progress of that process, a general meeting will be convened as and when with a special resolution to approve the liquidation. So this, in theory, should be a matter of time. I think the portfolio had about 40, 42 holdings or so about a month or so ago. So it's a relatively concentrated list. So this is a trust that's been investing in, uh, I think, essentially small cap stocks in emerging markets. And it's been a tough period over a number of years for emerging markets in relative terms, at least. So I guess this is just too small for them to consider doing a rollover or some of these other options that happen. And uh, possibly there isn't enough capital gains there anyway to make it worthwhile to even contemplate that. The point about uh, rollovers being that it allows investors to realise some capital gains without necessarily having to trigger an immediate tax payment. But is would that be the case here or not? I mean, what's the performance record like over quite a long period? It's been pretty poor, I think. Isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it launched back in June 2017. I've got it at a share price about 70, 74p at the moment. So making the assumption that it was launched at a pound, I think we can deduce that there's probably very little on the capital gains front. Over the last five years, in NAV terms, they're down 14%. Share price times even worse, actually, because they're on a discount down about 26%. So, yes, no, it hasn't been a great performer, sadly. And if it is it still trading on a discount? These are always interesting when you've got a trust going in to wind up. If it's trading on a discount, you would think that one or two, well, how should I describe them, vultures might descend and, <laughs> and sort of pick over the carcass, hoping for a return to par. Well, there presumably will be a close to par, full cash exit, less costs. But, of course, in the meantime, the markets could go down further. So I guess it's a two-way calculation you have to make about this yeah i've got it on about a 10 11 discount or so at the moment and that's probably reflective of the fact that the volume the trading volume in the secondary market of these shares is not great it's probably averaged less than sixty thousand shares over the last six months in addition to that you probably have to factor in 
the nature of its portfolio. I mean, you, you mentioned it was emerging markets. It's relatively concentrated. Um, it's kind of mid and small cap names. So people might be applying a bit of a haircut to some of those names. We'll see. But I suspect as and when this fund moves more into cash, as that level of cash rises, so too that discount might close. Yeah, that would be a logical chain of events for sure. Okay, let's talk about fundraising next. And there is a little bit more fundraising news to announce this week or to analyse this week. Let's kick off with the outcome of Digital9 Infrastructure's recent placing, ticker DGI9. Not surprisingly, what uh, what happened here? Yep, so they were successful. They announced that they'd raised £60 million. And again, I think we talked about this a week or two ago. This was done on an accelerated book bill process. So they said it would be done at a minimum price of 110p per share. And indeed, that's where they came in at. And that 110p represented about a 5% premium to their NAV at the end of December last year, and a 3% discount to the price just ahead of the announcement. The last time they came to the market was back in January. They raised £95 million at that stage. That was at a price of 108p. And there was some talk when they made the original announcement that they had a kind of near-term pipeline of 510 million though I suspect actually this 60 million might be a little bit less than what they were looking for. So certainly in the latter announcement, they announced that the proceeds would be used to pay down their credit facility. So I I think, as I recall, they hadn't actually put a a number on what they were hoping to raise. But uh, yeah, so that will be possibly a disappointment for them. Let's briefly cover DP Aircraft 1 Limited, took a DPA. They mentioned this uh, trust had been having a tap issue, basically just to stay alive, I think we thought. Tell us how that went. Yeah, exactly. So they raised the $750,000 that they were looking for. And I think, yes, to your point, they said it was for working capital. Effectively, they wanted to keep the lights on, so to speak. So they were successful in that. Okay, so I'm afraid that may be another one we won't be seeing for much longer. Well, it will have it's got a process to go through. Next up, Impact Healthcare REIT, ticker IHR. They've raised some money as well. Tell us about that particular issue. Yeah, they raised £22 million. They issued just over 19 million shares at a price of 117p per share. That was under a placing and offer for subscription. In fact, those new shares began trading uh, today, which is Friday the 8th of July. But the proceeds will be used to fund their acquisition pipeline and also to back some asset management initiatives. So just to remind people, Impact Healthcare REIT is focused on residential Care homes, certainly at the end of March, they had a portfolio of about 128 properties with a value of 533 million. It's very much the idea that the income stream is inflation linked, 100% inflation linked. And they last came to the market back in February this year when they raised 40 million pounds. Okay, so that one is sort of ticking along. That's uh, not a huge amount of money they raised, but it no doubt will be helpful. Let's next talk about Hickel Infrastructure. This is a much bigger vehicle, ticker HICL. Uh, what are they proposing to do? Yes, yeah, so they announced that they're looking to raise additional capital. Um, there's going to be a tap issue at 169p per share, and that's going to close on the 14th of July, so that's Thursday of next week. Now, that issue price represents about a 3% discount or so to the closing share price just ahead of the announcement and a 5% premium to their NAV at the end of March. Although they did note, and this is how the kind of the sands are shifting a little bit with some of these infrastructure names, that their inflation forecasts for their financial year 2023 are above the assumptions used in that NAV, the 31st of March NAV. And as a result, that will result in an uplift of between about 3 or 3.6p. So in other words, 
you know, I've got them on a premium of about 10, 11% at the moment, though, when you factor in that uplift, it's probably not to that extent. But it'd be interesting to see how this one goes. The proceeds will be used to pay down their credit facility. They've drawn down about £90 million on that so far. It's a £400 million credit facility. But I don't think Hickel have been to the market to raise additional capital since July 2020. So despite the fact that over the last few years, they have consistently traded on a, a premium rating, uh, it's been some time since they actually tried to raise additional capital. They were successful at that stage. A couple of years ago, they raised $120 million at a price of 164p. So it'd be very, very interesting given the fundraising conditions at the moment, which are not particularly great. But it'd be interesting to see how Hick will go. Indeed it will. And can one draw any inferences from the fact that uh, when we've seen these fundraisings, increasingly we don't actually see the targets mentioned. Is that because the conditions are pretty tough? As you said, the markets have been in pretty much in uh, in free fall. But uh, obviously these alternative asset trusts have held up very well and traded a premium, so that shouldn't be a problem in principle. But uh, do you think that's a factor? Is there just a general aversion to handing over cash when the markets are tumbling like this? Yeah, and I think that's a, probably a fair point, actually. I mean, just to put some numbers on that, certainly in the first half of 2022, the first six months, we think there's about £4.2 billion raised across the sector. Now that compares with £6.8 billion for the same period in 2021. So that's down about 39%. Now, last year was an exceptionally strong period for, for fundraising. And you probably have to kind of go back to 2019 or even 18 to kind of get a more comparable period. But again, and this is something that we talked about on a number of occasions, we have not seen a single IPO in the investment company space in the first half of this year. And I mean, frankly, I'd be very surprised if you, you see anything raise their head above the parapet until we kind of get into September, October, and it'll probably take a notable change in market direction until anything is successful. So if you're in one of these uh, businesses like private equity or infrastructure to some extent where you are hoping to, you have ongoing investments to make, you have commitments to meet, is that going to become a constraint over time? You're not going to be able to issue as much as you would have done in the past and therefore you won't be able to do as much, you know, uh, undertake as much activity as you would have done? Is that one of the consequences of what we're seeing in the markets? If that continues, assuming it continues. That's a very interesting point. I mean, if you look at where the money's been raised this year in the investment company sector, about 44% has been in infrastructure names. So obviously, there's a lot of renewable energy infrastructure in there. And one suspects, and that's why I think Hickel's quite interesting, one suspects that that will be an area that will continue to gather funds. People will continue to back those kind of names. And that's what the premium ratings would suggest. For those growth capital names, it's a completely different story. We've seen those names derated spectacularly. Uh, and I think we're going to come on and talk about Augmentum and their results in a minute. But where there is a requirement or potentially a requirement to follow on with capital in a relatively short time period, people are talking, and again, I think we talked about this recently, about runways at the moment, the length of runways for these kind of high growth companies. It used to be all about cash burn, but that's probably got some negative connotations. But you know, how quickly do they have to be there with additional capital? And that might be and I suspect it will be an issue for some of those higher growth private company kind of names. Yes, you have to be careful here. You get a bit tangled up with pipelines and runways and things and platforms. You could get some uh, quite uh, painfully mixed metaphors if we continue down this line too long. OK, let's move on and talk about some results. And let's start with that JP Morgan Trust you mentioned, managed by the firm you're about to join. Uh, JP Morgan Global Core Real Assets, ticker JARA, J-A-R-A, a very interesting arrival on the market. I can say that, I think. One we actually featured in the uh, Investment Trust Handbook last year. It's an interesting proposition. And JP Morgan are a big player in the real asset 
infrastructure and so on area. So just tell us about this one. They produced an annual results for the year to 28th of February. That's right. And in that time, they generated an NAV total return up 12.9%. In local currency terms, that came in at 11.9%. So they, they benefited from currency. It's worth noting the portfolio is unhedged. And so therefore, the sterling decline against the US dollar was a significant contributor to returns. But to your point, it's quite a diversified portfolio. So if you look at the kind of underlying sleeves, uh, US private real estate, uh, that was up 2.9%. Asia Pacific real estate up one7 private infrastructure up 1.5 and liquid real assets up 4.3. So they saw positive performance across the breadth of the portfolio. They also declared a dividend of 4p and the board's intention is to maintain the current dividend level for the financial year to 2023. So in other words, the next financial year. They also made the point that from the end of June, uh, so from where we are at the moment, they'll look to release monthly NAVs, which will contain the latest pricing for the liquid strategy and exchange rates whereas the private strategies will be priced on a quarterly basis. They also raised some uh, additional capital during the period. They raised about £8 million worth, and they invested during the year about $44 million, quite a lot, to private transport and private Asia-Pacific real estate assets. So this one is now, it's, uh, well, I, I can say that it started off quite slowly. The pound moved against it. There isn't a sterling share class, so that had an impact on the NEV. But that's the way that the uh, the launch was done. It's a mostly dollar-based uh, portfolio, but there are other currency exposures in there. And it's it's pretty much on track now. It got, had a pretty slow start getting invested, but it's pretty much on track now to deliver the kind of target returns it was talking about, which, as I recall, was something like 7 to 9% per annum, of which about half would be the dividend yield. And the idea, I think, behind it is to grow it quite significantly uh, and become a reliable and largely uncorrelated source of real returns. So interesting to watch how that one develops. Let's move on and talk about uh, Artemis Alpha Trust, ticker ATS. This is a UK equity trust, and they've had annual results for the year to the 30th of April. They had a very uh, storming year the year before, but I'm guessing this one wasn't quite so good. Yeah, no, that's right. A bit of a tricky year, actually. The NAV total return was down 21.9% in that period. That compared to a rise of 8.7% for the FTSE all share. And that underperformance was attributed to their exposure to consumer discretionary stocks. So that's about 70% of the portfolio at the moment, while they were underweight larger cap stocks, and in particular, mining commodities and oil gas companies. It's an interesting portfolio, this one. It's managed by, well, it's managed by John Dodd and Kartik Kumar, the latter of which came on board in about May 2018. Um, it certainly has had a bit of a tough year. The share price, actually, I should cover the off, that off. The share price is down 24.8% in that 12-month period as well. So it's quite a concentrated portfolio, this one. So the top 10 holdings represent about 68%. And actually, if you look at the names, it's perhaps no great surprise that it has struggled of late. So it's Fraser Group, it's Ryanair, it's Dignity, companies such as Nintendo, Hornby, Delivery Hero, Just Eat Takeaway. And as I said, it has got this significant exposure to the consumer discretionary sector. So this investment trust does trade on a bit of a discount. And actually, during the year in question, they bought back 4.4 million shares at a total cost of just short of £19 million. And that was at an average discount of 6.1%. And that added about 3p to their NAV. Yes, yeah, so this is a, has been an interesting vehicle. It's in the UK all companies sector, which has been a very tough place to be in the last year. I think every trust in the sector is uh, is well down in share price terms and discounts have widened. 
But this one is interesting because it had a bit of a makeover when uh, the new manager was added to the roster. And they now have a triennial liquidity event, which is uh, they can make a tender offer for up to 25% of the shares. Uh, but that doesn't come around till 2024. So uh, obviously they'll be hoping that uh, things pick up again uh, after their, what, as I said, was very strong performance in the previous year, but uh, given a lot of it back in the last year. How did, how did that one trade at the moment compared to some of the other names in that sector? Yeah, I've got it on about a 7% discount or so, and that's probably broadly in line with the average for that UK oil companies, though there's quite a dispersion of ratings. So, I mean, you've got Fidelity Special Values, probably one of the largest companies in that space, on about a 3 4% discount. And then you can look at names such as Henderson Opportunities, 15% discount. Independent Investment Trust, that's on about an 18% discount at the moment. Bailey Gifford UK Growth on about a 12% discount. So there's a real range of ratings. Okay, so we can move on and talk next about Oryx International Growth Trust, ticker OIG. Uh, they've had annual results to 31st of March. Perhaps you can remind us what this trust does and tell us uh, how they got on. Yeah, so well, in terms of how they got on, their NEV was down slightly in that 12-month period, about 4.6 down. And that was a result of their exposure to biotech and healthcare stocks in share price terms. Not quite so bad, actually, down about 0.7% in that 12-month period. But it's a very stock-specific investment trust. This one is managed by a gentleman called Christopher Mills of Harvard Capital. And it's focused on mid and small caps in the UK and US. It's predominantly the UK these days. And it does have a weighting to unquoted as well. So uh, it's a real stock picker's fund and uh, Christopher Mills is prepared to take a more activist approach should the occasion demand it. So in the period, key performers included names such as Circassia, Hargreaves Services and Centre Media, underperformers including EKF Diagnostics, MJ Gleason, Red Centric and Tribal Group. In terms of the unquoted, so they had a couple of wins in this area actually. They uh, exited a company called Viking uh, back in January, and saw a takeover of another company called Antler Holdco, and they were both at premiums to their valuations at the end of March last year, so 2021. Uh, but they did take a write off as well, a company called Tradewise. But it's 54 holdings, or it certainly was at the end of March, with the top 10 representing about 56% of net assets. Listed investments accounted for about 91% of net assets, with 4% in unlisted, and had about 5% in cash as well. So this one uh, operates in the smaller companies space, as you said, largely, and uh, sits in the UK smaller companies sector. How has it been performing? It has a very good long-term track record. How has it done more recently? Yes, I mean, obviously, over the last year, it has been a, a tougher period for it. But if you look at five years, for instance, five years NAV total return, they come in at 64%. And actually, just scanning the numbers uh, down the list, I think they're top of the pops over that five-year period, actually. Um, certainly the average for the peer group is up 15% and the FTSE small cap ex-investment companies index is up 19%. So significant outperformance over five years and indeed three years, but just slightly tougher over the last year, probably down about 24% in NAV terms. Yes. And uh, anyway, according to the IAC, the 10-year record is something like 500%. So that's uh, pretty impressive, but it is a very specialist area. So let's move on and talk about some overseas trusts now. We're going to start off with Aberdeen China Investment Company. ACIC, which had some interim results the 30th April. And uh, we know that the Chinese market has been a very tough area to be in over the last year, at least until the last few weeks. So how did uh, how did this one get on? 
Yeah, they struggled a little bit, to be honest. Their NAV total return was down 21.5%. That compared with a decline of 16.8% for the MSCI China All Share Index. In share price terms, they were down about 22.9%. So that underperformance was attributed to the market rotation from growth to value, uh, with the allocations to renewable energy, technology and healthcare detracting as well as being underweight energy and some of the large state-owned banks. But it's still very, very early days for this one. There was a change of mandate back in October last year. And in fact, they held a merger with Aberdeen New Tie in November, which saw not an insignificant amount of uh, assets roll over. So it's still very, very early days for Aberdeen China Investment Company. But in terms of the rating and the recent share price performance, uh, how does it compare to the other, the bigger names in that sector? We know that Bailey Gifford, Fidelity and JP Morgan. Yeah, so in terms of the discount or the rating, uh, it's on a wider discount than its peers. So um, if you look down the list, we've got the JP Morgan Fund on about a 1% premium, Fidelity China on a 1-2% discount, Bailey Gifford a little bit wider, 5% discount, but then you've got Aberdeen China on a 14% discount. So that's probably reflective of the fact that it's, it's a relatively short time period that it's, it's building its track record and also the nature of its shareholder base. So there'll be more institutional investors on the register at the moment and that will be a legacy of its history. In terms of its more recent performance, well they've all enjoyed a little bit of a a bump over the last month or so and certainly Aberdeen China has as well. So if you look at three-month NAV performance and that's an incredibly short period of time but just to kind of capture that bump, uh, they're up about 12% that compares with 14% for Bailey Gifford and JP Morgan. Uh, Fidelity China just lagging a little bit up 6% but a very, very short time period. Okay, so now we can move on and talk about, I think the other trust that was involved in creation of Aberdeen China was, uh, well, you say Aberdeen New Thai. What about Aberdeen New Dawn? Ticker ABD, annual results the year to 30th of April. Uh, similar, or a year rather than the interim results as with Aberdeen China. Tell us how this one got on and what that one does. It's obviously not, uh, it's not in China, but in uh, Asia Pacific, ex-Japan. That's right. So it recorded results. Uh, NAV total return down about 11%. That compared with a decline of 9.2% for the MSCI or country Asia Pacific X Japan index. In share price terms, not quite as good actually, down 11.8% as the discount widened out a little bit. But the relative performance, the NAV performance was hurt by, again, the market rotation from growth to value, and particularly the fund's lack of exposure to energy companies. However, they benefited from their stock selection in China. As the investment manager put it, their selective approach to internet companies was certainly beneficial, while parts of Southeast Asia were also contributors as well. Where they did see weakness was in Australia, India and South Korea. And it's just worth pausing there because Aberdeen New Dawn is uh, differentiated from the rest of the names in the Asia-Pacific subsector by its allocation to Australia and New Zealand, actually, but that's a far smaller weighting. I think they've got about 12% in Australia. I think probably the other thing to note as well is that their dividends came in at 4.3p, and that was in line with the previous financial year. Uh, And despite all the good work that uh, Aberdeen are doing, and this is uh, managed by an investment team led by James Tom, The management fee has been reduced, or at least they're uh, introducing a fee fee tier with effect from the 1st of May. So the annual fee will fall from 0.85% to 0.5% on net assets above 350 million. Okay, next up is Atlantis Japan Growth Fund, ticker AJG. 
uh, which has been around for a number of years, as I recall, with uh, a number of different managers over that period. Uh, they've had annual results for the year to 30th of April. Japan's not been a great place to be either, particularly, but uh, tell us how they got on. Yeah, they struggled as well, to be honest. Their NAV total return was down 26.9%. That compared with a decline of 5% for their benchmark. They also saw their discount widen from about 9% to 12%. Again, the underperformance was attributed to the fund's growth bias. And it's worth probably just pausing there because this is uh, focused on mid and small caps. It has about 66 stocks or so. The actual portfolio is, is managed or the investment advisor is Atlantis Investment Research Corporation based in Tokyo. And it's Teiko Satashi, which I, no doubt I pronounced incorrectly, uh, but responsible for the portfolio here. But they've also adopted an enhanced dividend policy. We've talked about this on a number of occasions. A few investment trusts have gone down this route. And the way that Atlantis Japan Growth Fund operates it is effectively they pay a quarterly dividend which is equal to 1% of the average NAV in the final month of the preceding financial year. So as a result of that, the, the quarterly dividend for their forthcoming financial year or the current financial year will be 2 spot 15p, and that results in a prospective dividend yield of 5.2%. This fund also faces a continuation vote at their AGM in 2023. So that's interesting on the discount. I mean, that must be a pretty high discount for a Japanese smaller company investment trust. But presumably the whole point of this is that uh, if it has to be taken out of capital, so be it. Has it had much impact in terms of the way that this uh, relatively small trust is uh, treated by the market? I think the answer is it's not entirely obvious that it has, to be honest. So I've got it on a discount of about 15% or so at the moment. That compares with an average discount of 12%. And certainly at its current level, it's on a wider discount than I think virtually any Japanese investment trust. It's also you know quite small, this one, Atlantis Japan Growth. Um, I've got it on a market cap of about £70 million. Pounds, and you know, it wasn't that many years ago when this was kind of the leading Japanese small cap fund, you know, significantly larger than, than all the rest. But that's not the case at the moment. And I think that will be a concern going into its continuation vote next year. Yes, I seem to recall that his manager was a gentleman called Ed Murner, and uh, he had a good reputation and uh, put together some very strong performance numbers, but that's rather faded in recent years. I think that's probably fair to say, but who knows where they may go next. Okay, let's move on to some specialist results then, finally. And we're going to kick off with the one you mentioned earlier, Augmentum Fintech, ticker AUGM. They've had annual results for the year to the 31st of March. This is an interesting story. You mentioned the issues around growth capital trust. Tell us about this one and how their figures look. Yeah, well, let's just cover off the numbers to start with. So the NAV was up 19% in that 12-month period, though the share price total return was down about 16% or so. But certainly in NAV terms, they had unrealized gains, just short of about 57 million. And in fact, they've accrued a performance of about 15 million pounds as a result. But they made some new investments. So they invested about 61 million pounds in seven new companies and seven existing portfolio companies. And they've also slowed their deployment of capital down in the second half of that financial year. So I think in the first half, it was about 44 million and they put 16 million to work in the second half. And I think that was very much reflecting changing market conditions and this idea that you have to kind of preserve your cash given where we are in the market cycle. But they did see some good exits, Dext, SRL, Global, Cedars and Interactive Investor. And that was certainly Interactive Investor caught the headlines with the acquisition 
from Aberdeen. So they're sitting with cash of about 60, 61 million pounds at the moment. And that follows that exit from Interactive Investor. They got about 43 million pounds back from that. But they made the point that the top 10 holdings have an average of 17 months cash runway, or in fact, are already profitable. The average forward revenue multiple of the top 10 investments stood about 5.3 times. And they uh, seem to suggest that was relatively conservative compared to some of their other kind of peers who are focused on private companies in the in the tech space. They have bought back some shares, about 0.7 million shares. Um, and in fact, they bought more since the year end. So period end, 1.1 million shares have been bought back. But the board has decided to retain the bulk of proceeds for investment uh, and also just to make some opportunistic buybacks. But it has been a real roller coaster for Augmentum Fintech. I think at one stage this year, their share price was down about 45%. That was only a, uh, about a month or so ago, probably mid-late June. It's actually bounced quite hard since then. It's probably up about 30% or so since then. So actually, year-to-date, the share price now finds itself down about 26%. But it is very stock-specific, and there's been some commentary around some of the names in the portfolio and what might happen to them in the relatively short to medium term. So there's a big disparity between the uh, NAV performance and the share price performance, as you mentioned. Uh, I mean, quite remarkable in a way. And yet, uh, this is another trust that's, um, how do we put it, bank to performance fee and subsequently performed not very well. Do you think that's going to be an issue? Will there be pressure again on this uh, particular board to have another look at the performance fee, given that's what's happened? Or do you think that that's just uh, par for the course these days? I mean, it doesn't look good, but uh, maybe they'll just uh, say we're happy that was the deal and that's what you have to take. Yeah, and it's a good point. I don't have the mechanics of the performance fee to hand, but I would suspect and frankly would hope that that performance fee was on the back of realised profits. And as I said, they have had a number of you know decent realisations in the period, particularly interactive investor. And to be honest, when you deal with private companies, that's part and parcel. A performance fee is, is invariably part of the setup. But, and this is the, the difference with Chrysalis investments, that it should be triggered by realised profits. I'd like to think that is the case with Augmentum. Because, I mean, 15 million, I mean, the market cap of this one is what, about, uh, I don't know what it is, it's probably about uh, 200 million or something, is it? I don't know, something like that. Yeah, 210 million, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, that's a that's a decent chunk. But anyway, so that's one aspect of it. I guess the other point to talk about here is they do have a lot of cash, as you said, significant amount of cash, and yet they're still on a big discount. So if you, uh, if, if as you were, which would obviously uh, have the impact of mitigating that discount to some extent. So... These uh, growth capital trusts are very much still out of favour, notwithstanding they bounce back a little bit. But uh, uh, that would that be a fair comment? I mean, they're still very much under the cosh at the moment, at least. Yeah, I mean, the discount, I think at the time the results were announced, the discount was about 30 32%. It has, to your point, tightening since then. I've got it on about an 18% discount. So compared with Chrysalis or compared with uh, some of the other names in that uh, subsector, the rating is a lot stronger for Augmentum. But the issue becomes if they do need to raise additional capital to support their existing portfolio companies. And clearly, on an 18% discount, that's incredibly hard to do, if not impossible. So that's the issue for them. And hence, the board's decision to preserve their capital at the moment, because that may prove invaluable in the, the weeks and months ahead. Down the line, indeed. OK, next up, let's talk about Bellevue Healthcare Trust, a ticker BBH. They've had interim results for the six months of 31st of May. Tell us how they got on. 
Well, they saw their NEV total return down about 17.3%, and that compared with uh, an increase of 4.5% for the MSCI World Healthcare Index. Share price total return down about 16.1%. So the underperformance was attributed to the fund's small and mid-cap bias, and also which suffered from market risk aversion. Uh, but just on that point, I mean, this is a very specialist fund in the healthcare sector. We've got about 35 holdings. The top 10 represent 55% of net assets. And about half the portfolio is in the mid cap, 25% in the small cap. So it will perform in a very different way to the MSCI World Healthcare Index. So a tough period for Bellevue Healthcare. Indeed. Uh, but it's one of the larger trusts uh, in this particular peer group, I would say. Worldwide Healthcare is the bigger one, I think. But uh... It's a decent size, this, this particular company, and uh, uh, its long-term record is not too bad, actually, is it? That's correct, yeah. So I've got it on about a market cap of 960 million, so not too far off the billion mark. Worldwide Healthcare Trust is the big daddy of this subsector with a 2.1 billion market cap. But in NAV total return terms, Bellevue Healthcare Trust is up 71% over the last five years, and that would put it ahead of its peers over that period. And in normal times, I keep coming back to this point, in normal times, that would be a fairly reasonable return to make. But we have been going through an extraordinary period in the markets when uh, things have got very frothy at one stage, uh, certainly. Uh, and this sector was certainly uh, benefited from that at the time. OK, finally, let's move on and talk about Harmony Energy Income Trust, ticker H-E-I-T. This is a, a newcomer to the market, only been around for a few months, uh, well, less than a year anyway. Interims for the period since incorporation. Yeah, that's right. So this launched back in November last year, raised £210 million. So it's just really covering off the first five or six months. So a lot of detail in terms of what has been going on, how it's deployed its capital. So just to cover off the numbers, the NAV per share was up 10.7%. And that reflected an uplift in revenue projections. Also, they've revalued some of their assets as they've moved from being shovel ready to under construction. So basically, they use a different discount rate depending on how they are classified. And all five of their seed projects have now signed uh, contracts with Tesla and are now under construction as well. And in fact, two of the five are expected to be operational by the end of this year, a further two by spring 2023. So it all seems to be progressing quite well. Quite a lot of detail in terms of what they're doing with these projects. And I think this the idea that there's more to follow talk of a six project and all the rest of it. I mean, in terms of what's in it for shareholders, well, they've declared a 1p dividend for the period and they've said that they're on track to pay 2p for 2022. But once they're up and running, the idea is that they, they target an 8p dividend for 2023. Okay, well, an 8p dividend sounds like that would be worth having if they can sustain that and if they can earn that. That would certainly be a reasonable dividend to look forward to. Okay, so that brings us to the end of our results this week and uh, pretty close to the end of this particular podcast and pretty close to the end of this particular era in the podcast. I should mention before we go that the Moneymakers Circle has a profile this week of Harbourvest Global Private Equity in addition to those uh, other normal features I mentioned earlier. So, Simon, how should we kind of sign this off? I mean, you're going on to better and greater things in the investment trust sector. You're not leaving the investment trust sector. And uh, you're leaving it at a time when I guess we're seeing both sides of the uh, investment trust coin. We had an incredibly strong period over many years when uh, investment trusts were comfortably outperforming the market. 
and their peer groups. But this is the kind of year that you will come round once every so often. And uh, we see, the, if you like, the downside of the investment trust sector, which is that discounts can widen, share prices can become more volatile than uh, if you were investing in an open-ended fund. But uh, how would you assess the, uh, the general health of the sector, um, you know, absent these uh, cyclical factors? I would say the health of the sector, and look, I would say this one, Ty, but I would say the health of the sector overall is good. And certainly talking to investment managers, you know, many of whom are going for a tough period at the moment, they all come back to the fact that there is a very clear advantage in running money in an investment trust structure. The close-ended fund gives them a real advantage, and you particularly see it at moments like this. They're not forced sellers. They can take long-term investment decisions. And I think that's invaluable. So yeah, it's a tough time at the moment. We have seen discounts widen out. But for me, investment trusts are all about long-term investment. And it's sometimes easy to lose sight of that. People get very excited about Bitcoin or whatever uh, the investment flavor of the day is. But if you look at the investment trust story, it's about multiple years investing. It's the, the idea of compounding returns. And that's why I think the structure is so invaluable. But you know, just to sign off, it has been you know, a fantastic few years uh, talking to you every week. Uh, I mean, I think my wife said I talk to you more than I talk to her, frankly, and uh, I haven't <laughs> quite done the maths on that, uh, but it certainly feels like that at times. But, you know, two names to mention just finally. I think, you know, I was delighted to learn a number of things over the last few years in conversation with you, but not least that Barry Manilow is still with us, uh, and long may that continue to be the case. Indeed. So we have learned you something. You heard it here first. Indeed. <laughs> you and heard it here first. <laughs> a name that we probably haven't mentioned over the course of the last few years, but actually is the kind of the third person in our collective efforts, and that's Ben Gamblin, who is the editor of these podcasts. And I can tell you, he does an absolutely brilliant job in making sure that what we come out with sounds reasonably coherent, which frankly, if you heard the recordings, is not entirely obvious. So Ben Gablin, who works in the background to make sure that this all happens, I think has been absolutely fantastic. Well, I would obviously endorse that. He is a uh, tremendous job in producing this uh, podcast. And of course, I have got a small collection of offcuts, you know, in case uh, in case you ever become very prominent, Simon. <laughs> we, need to, we need to bring you down to size. We're normally quite good at getting it done in one take, but uh, there are one or two occasions when we've, we've stumbled and a couple of occasions where unfortunately we've ended up in uh, in something close to hysterics, which is not, of course, appropriate in a serious investment podcast. But uh, that's just by the by. And uh, well, Simon, as I say, it'd be impossible to replace you in quite the way that you've uh, performed over the last couple of years. So I can only wish you well for your new job when that starts, which I think is going to be in September. Is that right? Something like that. And uh, in the meantime, you know, let's keep trucking on. Indeed. Well, I look forward to following Moneymakers in the months and years to come. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.